Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why are monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand humans? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientists with me, Sue Marchant and Dave Ansell. Have you got any news about uh, the world of science at the moment, Dave? Well, NASA has crashed one of their spaceships into the moon. Wow. This was deliberate, actually. In yeah. fact, it was a few weeks ago they actually did the crashing. Um, this was the Alcross mission. Ah, yes. Um, yeah, they basically um, they were launching, uh, sending a, the Lunar Recon- Reconnaissance Orbiter up to the moon anyway. They had mm. a bit of spare mass which they could take there. So what they did was they made a small spaceship and they attached it to the final rocket stage, a Centaur rocket stage. Um, and, so they got, and then they kind of they orbited that around the moon a couple of times and then aimed it at the moon and took the spacecraft off and sort of manoeuvred it so it was following the rocket stage. They got the rocket, then they all spanned the rocket stage around a bit so it had all been hit by the sun and it dried out completely. The rocket stage smashed into the moon. It made about a 20-metre-wide crater and threw up sort of 350 tonnes of dust and stuff off the moon. And this might seem a strange thing to, to want to do. But this was a very spe- they hit a very special place of um, a crater called Cabeus, on right on the South Pole, and the, this crater is always in the shade. Now, normally on the moon, it can get up to 150 degrees centigrade in the sun, mm. um, and in the, if it gets dark, it's down to minus up to minus 233, so really, really cold. And what they thought was, if they could find, if they get this crater, and which has always been in shade, and I think it's been in shade for billions of years, there might actually still be some water there. And so they crashed it, um, the, 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 actually sending a probe to land on the moon and then dig it up and look for water is actually very difficult. So instead they crashed this rocket stage into the moon. This threw up a huge plume of dust and whatever else was in there, dug mm. this, um, 350 tonnes of stuff up. And they looked at that using various instruments and they, from that they could then work out there was about 20 buckets of water thrown up out of this crater. Wow. It's kind of bizarre because the moon is in complete, um, it's in a complete hard vacuum and so the water should have evaporated but because it's been so cold it hasn't done for billions of years. And why might that be important? It's important because if we ever go to the moon and we want to build a, uh, a base on the moon, the one thing the moon doesn't have is any water and the one thing humans need lots of is water. So if we can go and dig it up on the moon, then it might save a huge amount of money, time and energy shipping water up to the moon from the Earth. Mm. Now then, Dr. Dave, let's go to uh, one of our first questions. Um, Mike says, uh, why does ice form in freezers and how does a frost-free freezer not freeze? Okay, um, a freezer basically works by pumping heat. It pumps heat out of your um, inside of the freezer and it pumps out the back. And that's the reason if you've ever been around the back of a freezer, all the pipes you fill them, they're really quite hot. That's why kittens always want to go and get stuck behind them, isn't <laughs> Lovely it? Lovely and warm, yeah. Um, so the, and the way it transfers the heat is you've got a, a liquid... Oh, so actually, it's a, um, you compress, the compressor compresses um, a gas into a liquid. That gives off lots of heat. Um, when you compress a gas, it gets hot. You then cool it down through those tubes. It then comes into the inside of the freezer, and it's expanded into a gas again. That absorbs lots of heat. And it is expanded through some pipes inside the freezer. Now, in an upright freezer, you can some, they're often in the shelves. You can see sort of pipes inside the shelves. Um, and they get and they get very very cold. So the coldest parts of the freezer. If you've got any wa- um, water vapor in the air inside the freezer, it's going to condense and it will condense on the coldest part of the freezer. So it condenses on these on the bits which are doing the cooling. 
Um, and if you keep opening, if you open the freezer, more um, warm, moist air goes in. It then condenses again, and it slowly builds up more and more ice. Um, the frost-free freezers, uh, I think the way they work is every kind of day or every certain period of time, they sort of run backwards and they heat up the cold cooling elements and that evaporates off the water or it drips off down to the bottom. And then, it, and then they turn and they go back to cooling again. And so they never actually freeze up nearly as badly as a normal freezer. Mm, all right, interesting stuff. Now then, Dave, we've got an email here. When I can find it, what have I done with it here? Ah, it's from Dave in Great Yarmouth. He says, um, Hi, so I've been recently looking at some magic eye pictures, very popular in the 80s, that somehow turn a flat screen or print appear into a 3D effect. I have even seen a text version that works. How does it happen? How does it occur, Dave? Okay, to understand how it works, you've got to understand how you, your eyes see 3D, or one of the ways your eyes see 3D. One of the, there are lots of different cunning plans, plans your brain uses to work out depth. But when things are fairly close to you, um, it uses the fact you've got two eyes. If you look at something quite close to you with one eye and then shut that eye and look at it with the other, the object seems to move compared to the background. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, it's because you're looking at it from a different angle. And your brain puts together this information from your two different eyes. It sees the object in two different places, your two different eyes, and it works out how far away it is. If it's further away, then the movement is less. If you stretch your hand right out to full distance, it should move slightly less. Yep, I'm doing that then. And so your brain <laughs> um, works out how much the, the difference is between your two eyes. I think my brain and it works. can work out how far away an object yep. is. Yep. Okay, the magic eye pictures take advantage of this. And what they do is they have a, an, a background which looks essentially random. They, they cut them and put patterns over the top of it, but essentially there's no information there mm. or it's sort of repeating a bit. But, yeah, it's essentially random. Um, but if you can uncross... Normally, if you look at something close to you, your eyes kind of are both pointing quite close together and so you just see something close to you. If you sort of uncross your eyes a bit when you're looking at one of these magic eye pictures because if you ever looked at them, you've got to do weird things to your eyes to get it to work. If you uncross your eyes, in fact inside that kind of random pattern there's two pictures um which are offset a bit by sort of maybe a couple of inches or mm. an inch or so and when you uncross your eyes um essentially your right eye sees one of the pictures and your left eye sees the other one and your brain all of a sudden puts it together as if it was an object a certain distance away so I've you can see you. depth yeah yeah um and so because it, it's if your right eye sees what a picture in um from one from one place uh, as if with some objects further yep. to the right than they should be yep. left eye sees some objects further to the left than it should be and you see this beautiful 3d image i, I was just trying that with my hands as you were saying because <laughs> you were giggling as you were answering the question and yes it does i understand that dave i hope that uh, makes it clear for you as well thank you very much indeed now uh tom in kingsland says a story in the news this week about somewhere in galloway being the darkest place in britain how do they measure that um, and he also says there are places in the fens which are really dark. I know, Tom. Um, is it to do with distance from light source or something? How does that happen? Um, yes. I think what they're looking at, is, I think the various places um, claim to be the darkest, have the darkest skies in Britain. Uh, it's basically if you go out in the middle of the night, you've got a nice clear night. If you're in the middle of a town, because there's so many streetlights shining so much light up into the sky, it's very, very hard to see the stars. But if you're in the middle of nowhere with hardly any streetlights about, 
um, then you can see the sky beautifully. I grew up in South Devon, right on the coast, and so there's not many people living there anyway, and you're right next to the coast, so there's nobody to the south, east or west of where I grew up because I was living on a peninsula, so you have beautiful skies in the winter. Mm. And com- compared to here, it, you can see hundreds and h- hundreds of more stars just because there's so much um, streetlights being reflected off the, sc- off the little bits of dust and stuff mm. in the sky. And so, yeah, I think it's probably measuring how dark it is in the... Um, how dark, yeah, how far away you are from streetlights. But I think the easiest way to look at it is if you've got a satellite and you get, uh, fly over Britain at night and take a photograph, um, then basically you see all the streetlights and you look for the place with the fewest streetlights and that's going to be the best place to go observing um, with a telescope. Absolutely. We must have uh, Dr Andy Green coming in soon, our um, director of the Stardome Planetarium. Isn't that great? It sounds good to it me. It does to me. All right, well, uh, let's go to the phones now because Bernie is here. Hello, Bernie. Uh, hello. That's one of the reasons why Patrick Moore chose to live in Selsey. Must have been. Yeah. All right, you're through today. What's your question, honey? Oh, yeah, it was about... Um, recently, someone got nicked in London for a series of crimes and forensics traced it all down to someone from the Windward Islands. I'm wondering how they get it so accurate and not just, say, the West Indies as a whole. Any ideas? Um, I would have thought what's going on is that they... I guess they had a DNA sample from him or her. Um, and if you look... If you, you can get the DNA, and if you, you can then... There's a load of... Um, lots of everyone has different genes, um, but your, your genes are most similar to the people you're related to. And if you've got um, sort of groups of people who've um, basically been living together for thousands of years, um, then you'll get some sort of peculiarities in their genetic makeup, um, particularly um, down the mother's side, because um, you, there's things called mitochondria in your cells, which actually generate the energy in your cells. And you only inherit those from your mother, so you can follow the maternal line back quite accurately. And I, I guess they looked at the, his set of genes and looked at other, all over the world at the places yeah. which most likely have that set of genes, and it happened to be in the Windward Islands. And with them living on islands, it's less likely they move around than the mainland, say. It's... Yeah, and the other thing, particularly with um, the West Indies, because it's not sort of, it is not a population which has moved around naturally. They've been imported by slave traders you'll get some islands who've had lots of um, um, a population which is based in slaves from one part of Africa. Oh, and yeah. then you might just sort of economically get another island who was run by the Spanish, and the Spanish imported their slaves from a different part of Africa. So you probably get quite... The, the um, genetic makeup probably changes quite a lot between islands which are very close together. Isn't science amazing? <laughs> I, I think so, certainly. Yes, I do too. Oh, bless Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bernie. Thanks very much indeed. Cheers. Well, we've got Jan in Ipswich on the phone. Hello, Jan. Hello there. There, you're through to Dr. Dave. What's your question? Well, I'd like to know, does the Earth breathe? You know, because everything on it does. You know, and I wondered if the Earth breathes out oxygen and takes in carbon. Um, so by the Earth, you mean sort of the rocks or...? Yeah, because, I mean, even metals breathe, don't they? You know, so, yeah, I wondered if the... I would imagine the whole Earth breathes. I mean, the Earth does, I mean, in some senses, it, it doesn't breathe in the same way as we breathe. It doesn't really get energy by, I mean, because we, we breathe in oxygen, um, react it with our food and give it out of carbon dioxide. And plants then take in that carbon dioxide and then use energy from the sun to convert it back into oxygen and sugar. 
Um, so it doesn't breathe in that sense and it isn't kind of vital for its survival or anything. But, it, I mean, it does take in gases and give out gases. Um, in, I mean, things like limestone, if you limestone, um, limestones are formed at the bottom of the oceans, um, either without any a- animals involved right in deep oceans or near the surface, um, corals and things make limestones. And then when they're ta- if they're subducted in a subduction zone, um, then they get taken down really deep, they heat up, and then that carbon do- then they, um, carbon dioxide from that is bre- is breaking off by the heat, and that comes up in volcanoes, and so the gases escape in volcanoes. Mm-hmm. So I mean, the Earth does sort of take in ga- sort of um, gases get turned into solid objects in, in the surface, and they get taken in deeper into the Earth. They get heated up, and they're released, and they're released in volcanoes. Okay. And this can cause um, big things to the climate because if you get lots and lots of volcanism, you get lots of carbon dioxide released which heats up the earth um and so you can get huge climatic changes if you get really big um uh, volcanic eruptions there have been some huge ones um the deccan flats in india several hundred million uh, hundreds of millions of years ago right. and some other ones in siberia you get huge volcanic eruptions and that, that gives out immense amounts of gases and that can completely change the climate and causes huge problems for life all right because uh, there's some thoughts they produce um sort of mass extinctions and things so the Earth can take in gases and give it out, but not but, quite but in the same way as a human. It doesn't, like, breathe. <laughs> it, 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 it's not vital for its survival. If you, cut, if you took all the gas away, the Earth would still sit there for billions of years perfectly happily. Right, OK. <laughs> Lovely. Thanks very much, Jan. OK, Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Um, hello to uh, Brian in um, Milton. He says, um, hi, Sue and Doc. Do you know when the meteors are coming through Earth's atmosphere? And are they... Are any of them likely to hit us? Ooh, Dr. Dave, that's one for you. Um, yeah, we are in a little uh, meteor storm at the moment. In fact, tonight's supposed to be a good night to look for them, the Leonids. Um, that basically means that they look like they're coming from um, Leo, the, um, Leo, the constellation Leo. Yeah. Um, and if, I mean, the, the, basically little particles of sand given off, but I'm not sure if they're a comet or um, an asteroid or something, um, basically little part, small particles of dust um, they hit the Earth at going tens of thousands of miles an hour. When they hit the, hit the upper atmosphere, they heat up, they get very hot, and you get these streaks of um, f- sort of fiery streaks, they get so hot. Um, I, will any of them hit us? Depends how big the lumps are. Um, small lumps burn up in the atmosphere very quickly. You've got to have really quite a big lump to get all the way down to Earth. Mm. Um, I'm not sure. Sh- I don't know whether they're whether the uh, meteorites which hit the Earth correlate at all with um, the uh, meteor meteorite sh- uh, meteor showers. Meteorites when they get to the Earth, meteors are when they burn up in the sky. Mm. Um, I don't know. I'm guessing they do a bit, but it just depends what hits us. It's purely fluke, basically. Now, John in Peterborough says um, he can't talk because he's a baker and the bread's due out of the oven soon. But he says where he walks his dog, there are loads of hazelnuts two years ago. Uh, but there have been none for the last two seasons. Why is that, Dr. Dave? Or is it just a load of vegetarians going out collecting nuts for their nut roasts and squirrels and things? <laughs> a sudden plague of squirrels. I think it's more likely to be just um, with the weather, basically. Um, apparently, you do get some effects whereby if you have a bumper crop of hazelnuts one year, then all the small trees take a while to recover. So the next year, they're kind of depleted on their resources and they don't produce quite something the next year. But the major thing is to do with how well they pollinate and what the weather's like when the um, trees are forming, um, have flowers. 
And so if, if the weather's really bad when the trees are forming flowers and there's not very, very much sunlight, then they're not going to have much energy to put into making flowers and the bees aren't going to be out and about, so they're not going to pollinate very many of them. So you don't get very much fruit. Um, I mean, other fruit trees are the same. I know plums, you, some years you get huge bumper crops mm. and the trees are falling over because there's so many plums on them. Other years you get virtually nothing. So it's basic, there tends to be a very, very short period when f- each fruit tree um, flowers. And if the weather happens to be exactly right, then you'll get mil- loads and loads of fruit. Otherwise, it can be very limited. Hazelnuts are going to be going up then, it sounds like, <laughs> like everything else. Uh, let's say hello to, and actually, oh, Dosh, um, we've got Ted on the line. Hello, Ted. Hello, good Hi. evening. Hello there, very good evening to you. You're through to Dr Dave, what's your question? Uh, yes, Dr Dave, I'm, I'm, I'm standing outside, or not quite, and I'm looking at the uh, my back door at the sky. Yeah. And if I'm not too, too uh, sure, when I wake up this morning in the early hours with an alarm clock, and I put the radio on and it tells me what's going on in the morning, it wakes me up, and some person was talking about things going on in the sky tonight and I need to get in a dark sky and look up towards the moon, and there's comets, there's all sorts of things, and I'm standing out here and I can't see a thing. Was yeah. I dreaming, or was I right? <laughs> there should be a meteorite, meteorite shower, um, sorry, a meteor shower tonight. Um, the problem with meteors is that they're, quite a lot of them aren't very bright. Um, even when they say a meteor shower, they mean you sort of get one or two a minute. Even, that's a really heavy meteor shower. So you've sort of got to, I don't know, I've I've watched a couple in the past and it's not really ideal for this time of year. The best ones are in the summer because then you can just lie out on the grass and just look at the sky. Um, That's what this gentleman was suggesting this morning, but it's a bit cool here in Northampton. Yeah, I think it's going to be a bit cool here <laughs> as well. Have uh, you got any binoculars? Because Andy Green, our astronomer, always says binoculars are great for looking at the night sky. They don't keep you warm, though. Although, <laughs> well, they're also not ideal for looking at meteors either because meteors, they can hit any part of the sky pretty much mostly you see them out the corner of your eye very rarely do you see them with the center of your eye because they they're there and gone so quickly that they're they're really there just in a flash so it's i haven't been out i don't know how good it is at the moment but it really is a case of just just looking out waiting for sort of 10 15 minutes at the very least probably longer and just looking at the sky and just sort of just looking for things in the corner of your eye, and you just see the odd sort of little streak in the corner of your eye. Okay, so it's not a big, not a big sort of uh, planetarial night, then, is it? Really, the way <laughs> the way these gentlemen were talking tonight, this morning, I thought it was, uh, you know. I mean, it, they are. I mean, meteor, um, the shooting stars, the same thing. They are, they are cool, and I do. They're lovely to watch. But I mean, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't sort of really rearrange your life for them. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, okay. if, you, if you get a dark, a dark night and they're quite fun, it's, oh, well. it's nice to have seen them. Ted, have you got a, dark, a nice dark sky where you are in Northamptonshire? Yeah, it's, it's not too bad. It's not too bad. It's, uh... Oh, bless you. Thank you very okay. much indeed, Ted. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. A strange one here um, from Adrian. He says, Sue, how do you make a fake gun uh, into a real one? Can you, is that possible? Um, it's not something I know about specifically, certainly. I'm um, relieved at that. I th- it depends on the kind of fake gun, I think. You, it doesn't work. I, I think it is possible in some very dubious... Pe- I think, it's, first of all, it's illegal. So we'll start off with yes. that one. So certainly don't do it. Yeah. Um, and I think some fake guns are made by taking a real gun and then attempting to stop it, sort of welding it up and making it impossible to fire. 
and others are just made by taking just random steel and putting it together. If you just got a fake fake gun, then it's not going to it's not going to be strong enough, and it'll probably it could easily explode. If you got one which was originally a real gun and it was fake, then you might be. Then it, I think there are um, illegal gunsmiths who can do various things to make it um, work, but. You don't so it's want to be doing legal that. and you certainly don't want to be doing it. No, you don't want to be doing that. We have more questions. Hello to uh, Mags, who says, Dr. Dave, can you explain why wheels on cars appear to be going backwards when they're moving? It, you normally only say it in certain circumstances. It's normally when something's flashing. Um, one of the places which is really common is on films or on TV, mm-hmm. and very commonly you see um, wheels going backwards then. The other time is sometimes at night when you're in streetlights, and streetlights actually flash about 50 times a second. Uh-huh. And the reason is, if you imagine a wheel going round and in a light which is flashing, and if um, and so you won't see the wheel all the time, you only see when, when there's a flash. Um, and so if you imagine the wheel, if the flash happens once every time the wheel goes round, then you'll always see the wheel in exactly the same place. So it will look like the wheel is absolutely still because you only see it in the same place in each rotation. Although it's spinning, you only see it in the same place in the rotation once every time and so it will look like it's dead still. If um, the wheel is going s- um, slightly faster and so it goes for- so it does just over w- one rotation every time, then it will look like it's going forwards but very slowly. <clears throat> Sorry, and if it's going slightly slower than um, so it flashes at slightly less than once every rotation then the wheel is going to not quite get to where it was last time so each flash it's, the wheel's going to you'll see the wheel slightly backwards at the time before and so it looks like it's going backwards the wheel's still going forwards but it looks like it's going backwards because every every flash the wheel doesn't quite catch up with itself so every time it gets so it looks like it's going backwards Interesting stuff. Um, hello to uh, Sophie, who sent an email in saying, um, I love the show. Um, why does water look blue when it's cold and greeny when it's warm? Dave? I'm not sure. That's an interesting one. Um, blue water, there's various different reasons why water looks blue. Um, the reason why the surface of the water looks very bright blue is often because the sky is blue and it's reflecting mm. the blue light from the sky. But bl- water is also actually blue. If you go very deep in the sea, um, then the, water, the light which gets down through it, well, the red light tends to get absorbed and the blue light tends to get... Um, and then the blue light will get through. So deep-sea fish can normally see blue light but not red light. And some other fish have worked out, have got their own red spotlights and so they can see the world in a colour of light which the other fish can't see. And so they use their red spotlight to illuminate the other fish and they can chase and eat them while the other fish can't see them. Um but uh, the reason why it probably warm sea certainly goes green because you've got um, algae in it, and so the water, um, so you've got green, the warm sea algae grow really well, and so you get green algae in there. Um, I haven't really noticed. I think yeah, I think I haven't noticed baths changing colour particularly. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.